Throughout the 1980s, a strange phenomenon was sweeping North America. They were in a panic. And like people in a panic, they want solutions. Allegations of underground satanic cults torturing and terrorizing children. The thing is, there were no satanic cults preying on children. And nearly 30 years later, the people touched by it all are still picking up the pieces. This isn't a work of fiction. This is a work of history. Satanic Panic, available now. This is a CBC Podcast. Welcome to Ideas. I'm Nala Ayed. I hate town hall so much. (laughs) (laughs) I really do. Particularly town hall meetings about sensitive topics. Like what to do with monuments, like what to do about the lack of affordable housing in cities. My name is Jay Pitter, and I'm a placemaker. Before I met Jay Pitter, I didn't really understand what the term placemaker meant. What that means is that I lead the design, programming, and policy of public spaces, and I use an equity-based lens in all of my projects. Those projects have taken Jay Pitter to 25 cities all over Canada and the United States and have earned her multiple awards, distinctions, and honors. As a placemaker, I'm far more interested in how we create actual space for diversity to flourish and interact. But make no mistake— Jay Pitter has no time for the way diversity has often become an institutional buzzword. Diversity is such an anemic and incomplete concept. For her, talking about diversity or anything else relating to public spaces just doesn't work, not in town halls or in workshops. Bottling it up and putting it in workshops, I don't actually understand the utility or the purpose of that. We need to restructure these conversations to kitchen tables, to small local businesses, to park benches, where you actually have to look at the human being sitting right beside you. And what better place to have a conversation about public spaces than in one? Good evening to all of you. It's such a pleasure to be here in person with you tonight. In November 2022, I introduced Jay Pitter at the Winter Garden Theatre in Toronto. She delivered her lecture for the Ontario Heritage Trust entitled, The Future of Culture is... Please join me. Put your hands together in welcoming to the stage... Jay Pitter. Jay strode onto the stage accompanied by a track of hip-hop chosen by her. So, hip-hop emanates from the inner city in the early 1970s. It transcended the bounds of art-making. It is fundamentally pluralistic and has always created space for powerful cultural collaboration across identities and geographic context. More personally, 
This bold and unpredictable cultural form is steeped in my generation. I was born when hip hop was, and it is cited in the kind of neighborhood where I grew up. I grew up in Scarborough in a low-income community. And so in these and similar projects, hip hop for me is not just an art form, but it is a praxis, meaning it is a practice that emanates from the ground up, from community, which for me makes it a wonderful example for this evening's topic. When you walked onto the stage, you chose a specific piece of hip hop music. And then you said something intriguing. It's a wonderful example you said, of your talk. Why was it a wonderful example? I chose hip-hop because hip-hop emerges from community, from the ground up. Hip-hop is fundamentally very pluralistic. It comes from the voice of African American and um, Jamaican uh, culture, youth culture. And then also hip-hop transcends race and culture. So you have hip-hop coming from indigenous communities and from the suburbs and from poor rural white communities. And so that transmutation and pluralism for me exemplifies the very best of culture. So when you think about the kind of urban spaces that you love most, does any specific one spring immediately to mind that captures that pluralistic spirit that you love about hip hop? Absolutely. My neighborhood. So I live in Kensington Market. And every summer in Kensington Market, we have these pedestrian Sundays. And during pedestrian Sundays, you see people from every corner of the city converge on my community. People dance in the streets. They share food. You hear every possible language. You have an intersection across race and class and genders. It's incredibly beautiful. It's mildly curated but there's a lot of informality and spontaneity that really exemplifies that kind of pluralism and transmutation that I'm talking about when I think about hip-hop music. I just want to give you just a little bit of a sense of how cultural policy and planning emerged in this country. And so basically early advocacy and discourse took place at the national level. And really it was very much centered around resisting Americanization as well as amplifying a Canadian identity through museums and art and archives. Culture has always been institutionally sidelined or siloed across intergovernmental portfolios in really problematic and awkward ways. And so we see sort of culture being strictly defined as the arts. When I was working as a provincial funder, in fact, hip-hop wasn't considered an art form. I found myself at 29 years old advocating to fund artists who um, practiced hip-hop. Also, I found myself um, advocating for indigenous artists whose art forms weren't learned in cultural arts institutions, but rather on reservations, rural communities, and urban indigenous context. I also found myself, you know, advocating for a large number of Eastern European artists at that time who'd immigrated to the country, but they didn't uh, study the arts 
you know, in the ways that the arts get studied here in Canada. And it was really hard for the council to understand that art is really steeped in a lot of people's daily lives and their practices, that it wasn't something that you went to school to learn. And another silo that really existed as well is like culture in service of economic goals. And then we also have culture in relation to state-owned buildings and we also have culture as a part of national diplomacy efforts. And so such a broad spectrum of cultural professions and agendas, but again, really siloed within and across different professions. The title of Jay Pitter's talk was The Future of Culture is dot, dot, dot. It was left incomplete, deliberately. Culture is extraordinarily complicated. Culture is an omnibus word which finds its poetic roots in the Latin word cultura, stemming from color, meaning to cultivate. Now, Raymond Williams, a Welsh scholar and writer, asserts that culture is actually one of the two or three most complicated words to define in the English language. And then we also have foremost author and social activist Bell Hooks explaining that part of this complication really stems from the following. Dominator culture has tried to keep us all afraid, to make us choose safety instead of risk, sameness instead of diversity, moving through that fear, finding out what connects us, wait for it, reveling in our differences instead of copying out by saying, I'm sure we have more in common than we have different. Differences is an awesome thing. The problem is that we don't know how to embrace difference and nuance in really good ways. But we shouldn't really be holding on to this idea that we have more in common than we have differences. Differences are wonderful. And so I love the way that Bell Hooks explains this. And that reveling in our differences, this is the process that actually brings us closer, that gives us a world of shared values and of meaningful community. So in your talk, you say that we should revel in our differences rather than kind of gloss over them and use that kind of tired phrase, we have more in common than we, than we do differences. But you also say that reveling would bring us closer and give us a world of shared values and meaningful community. That sounds like a contradiction, is it? It is not a contradiction, but it certainly is a complexity. People conflate difference with actually being farther apart and division, but those two things are not synonymous. Mm. Difference doesn't create division, but we're deathly afraid that that is the case. And if we look at human history, we have a lot of examples of that sadly uh, being the case. But as someone who has had, again, such an intimate and early uh, experience of connection across difference, I know that to be a lie. Can you give an example of that that has come up in your work? 
So in the early 90s, when Somali people were emigrating to Canada in large numbers, I worked with a group of young Somali girls, and we had such a great relationship. They taught me some Somali. I taught them more English. And when I wanted to go on excursions into the city, they shared with me that this wasn't really permissible in their culture that, you know, boys could go out and explore, but as girls, they had to stay close to home and remain covered. And so I was really conflicted inside because my sort of like young 20-something-year-old feminist self uh, was screaming inside, this is wrong. You should be able to explore and have adventures and really embrace your new home and your new city. But then also something inside of me was like, no, calm the hell down (laughs) and be curious, ask questions. And so I started asking them questions and received answers about their beliefs and their faith and, you know, norms in their community. And then that opened up a metaphoric door for me to start to think slightly differently and then a literal physical door into their homes where I was able to speak to their parents, share my perspective with their parents, but more importantly, respectfully listen to their parents, to their parents' concerns and cultural values and norms. And we didn't land on the exact same page after those conversations, but we were able to build enough trust for those young girls to be permitted to come with me on excursions with rules that made their parents feel comfortable. And so for me, there's something to be said about cultural humility and cultural curiosity. And so I learned that early in my career from that particular experience. When I think about capital C culture, we're generally talking about culture that is oftentimes exclusionary, enacted by narrow state policies and co-opted by institutional elites. And when I think about lowercase c culture like hip hop, it tends to be rooted in place, cultivated by community and expressed by a diverse range of people, both within and outside of institutions. I'm not suggesting that these two things are mutually exclusive, but I am suggesting that there are two types of culture cultures that we need to grapple with. And simply put, here's the deal. There is no place without culture, and there is no culture without place. And the fact that we have lacked places that foster understanding across differences and generative cultural conversations and practices more broadly have created considerable tensions. As you all know, in the past three years, we have been on the precipice and in the middle of so many cultural crises. We've got the environmental crises. We have a crisis of racial justice right across North America. We also saw 
a rise in just really dangerous partisan politics. And now we're having this whole situation on Twitter. I'm kind of, you know, I find that a little bit funny because some people are just like super vain and they're concerned about their little checkmark thingy. And But there's a really serious situation, though, in terms of the way that the financialization of culture can mediate our interaction with each other just as powerfully as algorithms. And so I think it's really something to pay attention to. One of the things that I've really noted is that unresolved historical, systemic, digital environmental and interpersonal violence is creating unprecedented cultural chaos, threatening our cultural futures. I know you didn't plan on having me come here to tell you about how our cultural futures were going to be threatened, but we have to start asking critical questions which point to power and changing systems. How do we decenter? both the privileged gatekeepers of capital C institutional culture and the so-called keepers of authentic culture across historically marginalized communities so that everyone can contribute to the city's culture. I want you to understand what I'm getting at with this question. It's so important to not just contest and interrogate those who have power. It is also important to interrogate people who may come from historically marginalized groups who are perpetuating or presenting themselves as the keepers of authentic culture. There is absolutely no such thing. There is absolutely no such thing. Sounds so definitive. I'm getting a sense that there's a story behind this. So many stories about this. It's such a sensitive uh, issue because as a Black woman who leads an equity-based practice, folks from my community and racialized uh, communities expect me to challenge the status quo. They expect me to challenge colonialism and institutional culture and the harm and the violence that has resulted from that. And I do. And I do it unapologetically and boldly every single day in this practice. But what they don't expect is for me to challenge us. And to do this work with a level of integrity, I must challenge us as well. And within racialized groups, there are absolutely cultural gatekeepers, folks who feel as though if you don't practice culture in a particular way, if you don't present in a particular way, if you have cultural interest outside of your cultural group, that you are somehow a cultural traitor, a sellout, an outsider. And I say absolutely not, because culture requires breadth and space to be hybrid and free and creative. And so, yeah, I call out cultural gatekeeping. It's boring and it's oppressive. It's important to you to be able to challenge anyone, no matter what side of any argument that they're on. What is it like when you are 
described as a traitor to a culture? Uh, I'm going to be very careful about not sharing a specific incident. However, I will say that while working on the Little Jamaica project, which of course will become our city's first ever cultural district. And I'm so proud of that. And my grandmother actually purchased our family's first home in Little Jamaica. And while working on this project, there have been moments where my cultural credibility has been challenged uh, because... I am either not Jamaican enough because I was very clear that this cultural district should celebrate all Caribbean culture as well as newer African cultures. And that was very painful for me. Um, I'm Jamaican born. I came here when I was four. I am very proud um, of being Jamaican. And so those types of accusations, um, which emerged multiple times throughout this process, has been very painful. And I think because it's so close to home. Um, so, yeah. Your work is so personal. It is. It is. Because it's not just work for me. And I think that a lot of people living in Canada who have the experience of being first generation or coming here at a very young age, I think we all know the pain of being perceived as not being culturally authentic enough and existing in a certain kind of liminal space. And I think that so many of us have struggled with that. And I certainly have, as I just shared, working on this project. And when I am in those moments, the thing that I consistently come back to is that the beautiful thing about culture is that it actually transcends social locations and identities. Culture is fertile ground where we get to define and redefine who we are on our own terms. I'm just going to ask you something that I know many people have been wondering about, but, but maybe reluctant to ask because it's awkward to ask. We're in a time when diversity is mentioned a lot in corporate and cultural sectors. Do you ever get the sense that the term is misused or overused or abused? I also feel strongly that diversity isn't actually good enough at all. I'm very specific about leading an equity-based practice, not a diversity practice. Diversity is such an anemic and incomplete concept. Certainly, the idea of variance and difference is not only a good idea, it is throughout all creation. 
diversity just is. And so this idea of bottling it up and putting it in workshops and having these extended conversations about diversity, I don't actually understand the utility or the purpose of that. As a placemaker, I'm far more interested in how we create actual space for those diversities to flourish and interact. That for me is way more interesting than having a theoretical or guilt-ridden conversation about our diversity. How do we get there? I'm biased, but what I would say is that until the theory and the discourse actually lands on the ground, in place, we're not going to be able to move forward. Having conceptual conversations about our identities versus having our various diversities and identities meeting each other in real life, like on the ground, I just don't get it. What I don't understand are conversations that have no proximity to our daily lives, to our cultural rituals, whether it's popping into that coffee shop every single day where you know the barista, where you speak to your neighbors, where you walk outside and walk three blocks and experience uh, an Indigenous place name and also Native species, and where you can go past a monument that is is not celebrating a great man, but is, or a so called great man rather, but is celebrating community values or creativity. That for me is how we move forward. It's through our daily lives and experiences. And so, even when I think about cultural institutions uh, like arts organizations or a cultural institution like CBC, you know, culture will never fully realize itself within bricks and mortar or four walls. Culture actually has to go outside and engage with the messiness and the beauty of what happens outside. It's not something we can just talk about or write about or debate about on Twitter or get workshopped into your soul. You're listening to Ideas. We're a podcast and a broadcast heard on CBC Radio 1 in Canada, across North America on Sirius XM, in Australia on ABC Radio National, and around the world at cbc.ca slash ideas. Find us on the CBC Listen app and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Nala Ayed. When faced with the complex moral questions the world tends to throw our way, it's easy to feel overwhelmed. My name is Waleed Ali. And I'm Scott Stevens. We're the hosts of The Minefield, an ABC Australia podcast. And each week we try to navigate the moral complexities of modern life in a way that's unexpected, unpredictable, intellectually serious, but more than a little fun. Along the way, we're joined by a range of philosophers and thinkers who promise to help you see the world and the challenges we face in a different light. You can listen to The Minefield wherever you get your podcasts. So I grew up in public housing. I'm a very, very proud public housing kid. This is Jay Pitter on stage at the Winter Garden Theatre in Toronto, delivering a talk for the 2022 Heritage Matters Live series, a series that's featured speakers like cultural anthropologist Wade Davis, 
Cree painter Kent Monkman and photographer Ed Bertinsky. You know, there are some folks who are racialized who, like, hate it when I tell this story. I'm going to tell this story tonight. As you'll hear, Jay's early life laid the foundation for her later vision of how we can create and recreate public spaces. And one of the people who most inspired that vision was a kind of unlikely figure. An Irish-Canadian gay man who was my second grade teacher, and he became my second dad. He would come to my community during the summers, and he would take me on the bus into the larger city. And I remember being a kid on the bus and then on the subway and looking out the window and seeing different communities that they had things that my community didn't have. Things like grass and benches and libraries and swimming pools. And that really sparked my interest in place-based work. Whenever I tell this story about my Irish-Canadian dad, People challenge me and say that it's sort of like a white savior story. And while white savior stories exist in these two-hour movies that are generally kind of condescending, they certainly don't exist in relationships that span decades and decades. My story would not be possible anywhere but this city. My cultural influences would not be possible anywhere but this city. And at the same time, Don't get too self-congratulatory. This city needs to do better. I am a singular story. What I am looking for is to live in a city that has hybrid culture and people developing relationships across culture and across race in a way that truly is relational. We'll never get to sort of cultural harmony through the diversity workshop where you put some white people in a room, turn the heat down, make them hot and cry. That is not the way that we're going to move forward in terms of creating racial and cultural harmony in this country. It really is going to take relationships. When I talk about my work, I often revert right back to second grade. And and I was that kid who sat at the back of the classroom talking out of turn all the time. And my second grade teacher, who in fact became my second dad and lifelong mentor, um, he asked me uh, to come to the front of the class and share what I was saying if I thought it was more important than his lesson. And I did. I think most little people would think that that was a really sarcastic way of being told to be quiet. I thought it was a legitimate invitation. And I don't remember what I shared, but I do remember him saying that what I had to say was indeed important. And that was a really big turning point in my life. Um, From that day, I've never occupied the back of any space a classroom, a bus, um, a cultural space ever again. From that moment forward, uh, he started coming to the uh, inner city community where I lived. And he would pick me up and take me on the subway and the bus. And we would take trips into the city. And we would go to cultural venues and parks, symphony, the opera. And I, at a very, very early age, I had a sense that we did not live in a single city. The marginalized community where I grew up didn't have 
great green space. It didn't have a library or a swimming pool. It didn't have beautiful, cushy chairs where you could um, witness uh, cultural performances. And so I became really aware of the fact that there was some sort of spatial unfairness at the age of eight years Mm -hmm. old. And I, as I grew up, a lot of the peers I went to elementary school with felt hesitant to come into the downtown core. They felt that they didn't belong in the city. And I felt like I belonged absolutely everywhere I was. So you felt belonging because of the second father. I absolutely did. Mm -hmm. And not just belonging, but a sense of what we call in my practice, spatial entitlement. I felt entitled to be anywhere I wanted to be, anywhere I could imagine, anywhere there was beauty and opportunity and interesting conversation. That's where I wanted to be. I imagine it would have been seen as an unusual connection between the two of you. Why did you bring it up in your speech, and what was the lesson you wanted people to take away from it? I talk about him knowing that a lot of people either think that the relationship was one that was fraught with racial power dynamics or some sort of inappropriate age difference uh, dynamic. And I share it despite these uh, perceptions about the relationship because it is a story that exemplifies what is possible and what should be probable living in a city like Toronto. It is an unlikely connection, but it should be more common. Because of what I look like, people assume that I have a very set idea of what should happen with colonial symbols and statues, but I actually do not. I've studied this quite deeply, but when I'm working on projects, I really try to come in not imposing my personal viewpoints or even my professional viewpoints onto communities that are not my own. Really, my job is to very closely listen. And I've also been on the ground on the front lines of some of the most heated dispute. In fact, when I was working in the American South, the day that I led a huge walk um, across a particular city related to, I can tell you the city, so Lexington. I'm not under an NDA for that one. So I'm in Lexington, Kentucky, and the day that I led a walk in that city, someone reminded me that it was the anniversary of the murder of a young white woman named Heather Hare who died, who was murdered by a vehicle over a debate about an inanimate object. And so while I was working on that project, I was actually scared to death. And I'm rarely scared. I I mentioned I'm from the hood, so it's really hard to scare me. But I was really scared to death because we are at a point in our history where we can't actually have conversations anymore. We cannot have even regular conversations anymore, let alone these conversations that are incredibly fraught. And I know that these objects carry many, many meanings. And so heated debates 
pertaining to colonial place names are almost never strictly about a name or a symbolic object. The unspoken issues underlying these debates are generally centered around a profound sense of cultural erasure, inequity, and a lack of belonging. So I find that in these conversations, far too often, we are talking about a symbol, but there's a much more layered and nuanced conversation that needs to be had that we are not having. It is not accidental that these issues are on the rise amid a global pandemic, amid an economic downturn, amid environmental insecurity. These issues are coming to the fore because people are feeling less secure about their place in cities than ever before. You just heard Jay Pitter say that she doesn't scare easily, but that she was afraid in Lexington, Kentucky. I wanted to find out why. Was there something specific that set off that fear? Just being there and being Black in the American South was a horrifying experience initially in and of itself. Turns out she had reason to be afraid. Lexington was white-knuckle tense. I was called in after a group of African-American activists alongside white philanthropists and white activists petitioned for the removal of two Confederate monuments. The issue was so contested that the KKK made threats. The monuments were removed in the dark of the night for fear of violence. And so after that, I was called in to lead conversations and to provide some design and placemaking advice about what should happen to the space. So keeping that in mind, tell me about your experience landing at Lexington. Wow. That was a life-changing experience. The thing that is burnt into my memory is being in my hotel room, opening the window and staring down at an auction block where people who looked like me were bought and sold alongside mattresses and chairs and chickens. I couldn't even process that in my mind. And there was also a whipping post where people who looked like me would be publicly beaten and humiliated. As someone who wakes up feeling wholly human every single day, it was just something that I absolutely could not process. And at the same time, I knew that I had the responsibility of leading a process that brought people together across difference. And so I found myself in situations where um, after an incredibly successful convening that brought African-Americans and white Americans into a room together to grapple with the reimagining of this particular space, 
And, you know, people said, this is never going to happen. They're not going to come. And people not only filled the room, people were spilling onto outside into the um, external space in the parking lot. And after that incredibly successful session, a really elderly white woman approached me with tears in her eyes. And she said, this was such an important conversation for me to participate in because my family owned people like you. Wow. And it was such a surreal moment because she personalized it. So, of course, intellectually, I know as a Black person traveling the South that when I come across many white people, that they come from families who owned people like me. But to have someone who was almost 100 years old, so not so far away from that history, look at me and say, my family owned people like you. That was really personal. And it was really hard. Mm -hmm. And so in that moment, I had to decide whether or not I was going to openly express how harmed I was and actually infuriated in many ways, or if I was going to remain in the leadership role that I'd been entrusted with, which was bringing people together to have really hard conversations. And in that moment, I was able to lean on the ladder. That decision forever altered Jay's initial misapprehensions about the American South. I love being wrong. <laughs> the American South is now one of my favorite places to be. I have very strong relationships in Lexington, in Memphis, all over the South. I love the South. Do you remember the moment where you changed your mind? Wow, great question. You know, it's, I, I think that when you open yourself up to, again, cultural curiosity, it's not even necessarily a conscious decision. It's a process of small interactions and steps. It was taking walks with the community. Uh, it was learning that a lot of people in the South of all races want to heal that history, that people of all races are suffering. In that process, it was also beautiful because it wasn't just a black and white conversation. We talked about how young people, how families, how LGBT plus folks, how Muslim people could feel more belonging in that space as well. And that's something that I'm actually most proud of, that in reimagining this space that is a site of contestation for Black and white people, we reimagined it in such a way that didn't just bring Black and white people closer together, that it brought the whole entire city into a conversation about equitable space. And so what does that space now look like? 
The space is ever evolving. So through the work, uh, there is uh, a, the old courthouse has been redeveloped. And so there's a restaurant in there. There is a uh, visitor center where you can learn about the history of the city and also about that fraught history as well. The monuments are gone. The monuments are gone. So is that the outcome that you hoped for? So in that situation, the monuments were removed before I got there. However, in other projects that I've led, sometimes the monuments have remained and have been contextualized. And in truth, I think that all of the options are equally valid because it's not simply about removing monuments. There can be true dangers in that. That can lead to the sanitization of these fraught histories. And when we sanitize and erase history, we obviously risk repeating those histories. And so if you look at precedents in Europe after the Holocaust and World War II, in Rwanda after genocide, in South Africa after apartheid, they don't actually remove all traces of these fraught histories. In fact, they double down and they mark them. So really, it is only in the West, in North America, where we're moving down this path of removal. And what I would say is that that's simplistic and there's some risk in that. I'm not saying that removal isn't warranted in some instances. It is, and it requires a lot of deep research and understanding the history of that very specific and particular monument, statue, or symbol. And it also requires a deep conversation with community as well. And in Jay's experience, those deep conversations should never, could never take place at a town hall meeting, as in not ever. I hate town hall so much. (laughs) (laughs) I really do. I do not like town hall meetings, particularly town hall meetings about sensitive topics like what to do with a monument, like what to do about the lack of affordable housing uh, in cities. Town halls are uh, basically spaces where you pack hundreds of people into a room, you put a microphone at the front of the room, and you invite the most extroverted people who feel a great sense of unhealthy entitlement to come in front of an electronic device that amplifies every thought they've ever thought, whether it was mindful, whether it was kind or unkind, biased or unbiased. And people get to stand in front of this room and looking into an ocean of people, but never looking into the humanity of a single individual. And that is what causes deep harm and damage. So I absolutely do not like town halls. We need to restructure these conversations to kitchen tables, to small local businesses, to park benches, small conversations where you're not afforded the cowardice 
of bellowing into a group of people where you actually have to look at the human being sitting right beside you. And about halfway through her talk, Jay put that very thought directly to her audience. I'd like you to turn to someone sitting next to you, and I'd like you to take a couple of minutes and tell them who inspires you when it comes to embracing and enjoying the culture of our city. This interpersonal relational principle shapes not only Jay Pitter's philosophy as a placemaker, but the entire talk itself. Her lecture about placemaking began with the personal. And that's how it ended, with her referencing on stage photographs of her immediate family members. So here we have my grandmother, who immigrated from Jamaica in the late 1960s. She worked in a mercilessly hot laundry hotel. She was a seamstress, and so she sewed on the side. She baked black cake, and she put all of her pennies together and purchased a home in Canada. Her story is no longer possible, not just for Jamaican or Black immigrants, but it is not possible for so many people in the city. And that lack of possibility is tearing at the cultural fabric of our city. And so I, uh, I uh, was a young mom, so I became a mom about 10 days before I turned 20. And so my daughter was raised in an intergenerational home. And my grandmother, once in a while, I would go out with my friends and I would wear like a mini skirt and my grandmother would take like Pentecostal holy water and like sprinkle it on me on my way out the door. She would also on a regular basis tell me that if I didn't stop being so sassy, I wouldn't find a husband. So she had like these values and these ideas that just did not resonate with me. But at the same time, she was such an incredible incredible human to my daughter. I named her Kirsten Brianna Hazan. She is known worldwide as DJ Bambi. She is an internationally recognized artist. My dream as a kid was to make it out of the projects. My daughter has been to over 75 cities throughout the world. She is my dream. There's a saying that we have in my culture. I am my ancestors' wildest dreams. My daughter is my wildest dream. My daughter and my grandmother were so intimately connected. My grandmother used to pick up my daughter from elementary school and bring her home with her little friends. And you know when you bring your friends home, like you want a little bit of cookies and milk? My grandmother would be frying these kids' snap fish and fried plantain for snacks at like 3.30 in the afternoon. My grandmother taught my daughter how to cook, how to sew. My daughter would be upstairs in the bungalow with my grandmother singing all of these gospel Pentecostal songs, and then she would come downstairs and sing Barney. My grandmother lived in an elderly care home for her last years, and my DJ daughter would go to that home And she would play the early Pentecostal deep religious songs. And my grandmother would come to life and come to memory. My daughter is nothing like my grandmother. 
And in many ways, she's quite different than me. And we're a part of a spectrum. And I think that there's something really beautiful about that, that even within a family, you can have a line or a lineage of people who love and respect their cultures, but who express it in entirely different but equally beautiful ways. And so I think that is a really powerful thing about culture. The last thing that I would like to share with you today is this, and this may sound surprising as someone who leads an equity-based placemaking practice, but just bear with me for a second. Racial identities are really beautiful things. They evoke food and sounds and practices and really wonderful connections. Race is also manufactured. And it's one of the most divisive things that has been sort of pr projected onto people and the racialization um, of people. So race can also be incredibly limiting. Identity politics can also be incredibly limiting. What I love about culture, especially culture that comes from the ground, culture that is rooted in place is that it has the potential of establishing good ground for us to both contest and blur rigid identity silos, awakening and exploration of what it means to be truly human. Thank you. I'd like to end with an example of that, that you gave from your own life and your own experience, which is sitting at a table in Lexington, sharing a meal. Can you paint the picture of that experience? Absolutely. So as I mentioned earlier, I was initially afraid in Lexington. And there was a couple in Lexington and their home had been the gathering place for a lot of the meetings around the activism and the monuments. And so I approached this couple. Uh, the husband is an urban farmer with a really wicked music collection. And the wife is um, a community leader and organizer. And so I approached them about hosting a dinner together. And so together, we came up with a menu that was half Southern and half Caribbean. And so I we went shopping together and um, I was able to purchase ingredients to make my grandmother's jerk chicken. And in the Caribbean, we say rice on peas, like we made rice and peas. And then they got some collard greens from their backyard and they made greens. And we invited a bunch of people together across race um, who had been very interested and connected to the entire process. And we actually cooked together. So I got to know the community through chopping up sweet potatoes and explaining what jerk sauce was and making rice and peas together. And they taught me how to make legitimate yams and collard greens. And so we cooked together, men, women in the kitchen side by side. Sounds amazing. It was so amazing. And listened to real records and had this beautiful, beautiful cross-cultural uh, meal. And firstly, that is when I, 
I forgot about fear. And when I knew that we were going to be able to move forward in a really good way, and I'm still very close friends with those folks, many of them. Can we make dinner together one day? I would love to, Nala. You've been wonderful. Thank you so much for talking to me. Thank you for having me. You were listening to Placemaker Jay Pitter, who delivered the 2022 Heritage Matters Lives talk, The Future of Culture Is. This episode was produced by Greg Kelly. Lisa Ayuso is the web producer of Ideas. Technical production, Danielle Duval. Special thanks to the audio and stage crews at the Winter Garden Theatre for all their help in recording the event. Nikola Lukšić is the senior producer. The executive producer of Ideas is Greg Kelly, and I'm Nala Ayed. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.